Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. Today is the last day to file 2022 tax returns. We bring you some useful tips on what you can do before the window closes. Elon Musk again warning of dangers posed by artificial intelligence, saying it could destroy civilization. We bring you his main concerns. Bud Light parent company Anheuser-Busch finds itself in the crosshairs of a new lawsuit. A conservative group is alleging racist hiring practices under the disguise of equity. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerchkovich gets some bad news. The journalist will have to stay put in a KGB prison at least until the end of May. House Republicans moving forward with their probe into Biden family business dealings. More family members are now being investigated, bringing the total up to nine. It's April 18th. The deadline has finally arrived for filing 2022 tax returns. Here are some last-minute tax filing tips that could be helpful. In some years, post offices located around the world stayed open until midnight. But this year, that's not the case. Fortunately, tax returns can also be filed electronically if you miss your post office hours. And if you don't owe the IRS any money or have a refund coming, there's actually no penalty for missing the deadline. This may not be the case for state taxes, however. Anyone can request an automatic six-month extension until October 16th, but that's only to file the paperwork, not pay the taxes. The IRS recommends people who owe taxes should pay as much as they can by today to minimize late charges. Tech CEO Elon Musk continues ringing alarm bells over artificial intelligence, calling it a threat to civilization. Meanwhile, he opens up about the role Twitter might play in the 2024 presidential election. Here's more. Billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk issued a stark warning that artificial intelligence, or AI, has the potential to destroy civilization. Currently, the two major AI systems are Microsoft-aligned ChatGPT and Google-owned DeepMind. In a new interview with Tucker Carlson, Musk cautioned that those two are being trained to be politically correct. He says that if too powerful, they could lead to an AI dystopia. He also warned about the dangers of surpassing a point of so-called singularity. What happens when something uh, vastly smarter than the smartest person uh, comes along in silicon form? Uh, it's very difficult to predict what will happen in that circumstance. It's called the singularity. It's, you know, it's a singularity like a black hole because yes. you, you don't know what happens after that. The CEO of DeepMind recently noted that AI could reach a state of self-awareness. In the same interview, Musk also noted that AI is... More dangerous than, say, mismanaged uh, aircraft design or production maintenance or, or, or bad car production uh, in the sense that it is, it has the potential, uh, however small one may regard that probability, but it is non-trivial. It has the potential of civilizational destruction. Musk also discussed his conversations with Google co-founder Larry Page. He expressed concern that Page wasn't taking the risk of AI seriously. He really seemed to be one um, once sort of digital superintelligence, basically digital god, if you will, uh, uh, as soon as possible. Musk now says he wants to create a so-called truth GPT an AI system that prioritizes protecting humanity and has no bias towards any political ideas. Meanwhile, according to Musk, Twitter will likely play a significant part in the 2024 presidential elections and other elections around the world. The goal of new Twitter is to be um, as fair and even-handed as possible, uh, so not favoring any political uh, ideology. He then criticized Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, who ahead of the 2020 election gave over $400 million to organizations helping turn out the vote for Democrats. Troubles continue to mount for Bud Light in the wake of the Dylan Mulvaney ad. Parent company Anheuser-Busch has been hit with a lawsuit. It alleges racist hiring practices under a cloak of equity. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. American First Legal filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the brewing company. It alleges the beer maker discriminates based on race, color, national origin, and sex, all under the guise of equity. 
This in relation to a program aimed at giving opportunities to minorities and women. The lawsuit criticizes the company's Leadership Accelerator program. The program ensures mentorship, interaction with executives, and other opportunities, but allegedly excludes white and Asian Americans. In a letter to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, American First Legal wrote, This is not a regular corporate program. It is a fast-track program to executive leadership positions at Anheuser-Busch, and it is limited to candidates based on race. The allegations come as Bud Light has been under fire for choosing transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney to represent the company, former Congressman Jason Chaffetz on Fox News. But this ad campaign is all about being woke and they are going to grow broke. The marketing campaign was the brainchild of Bud Light marketing VP Alyssa Gordon Heinerscheid. So I had this super clear mandate. It's like mm -hmm. we need to evolve and elevate this incredibly iconic brand. Heinerscheid says for her, evolve and elevate means inclusivity. Bud Light had been kind of a brand of fratty, kind of out-of-touch humor. The Bud Light campaign was met with public outrage from some segments of the population. Celebrities like country music singer John Rich, Travis Tritt, and Kid Rock called for boycotts. In apparent damage control, Anheuser-Busch launched a new patriotic advertisement. It shows its most iconic Clydesdale horse walking past the Grand Canyon and other landmarks. The ad has drawn widespread criticism on social media. AB InBev, which owns Anheuser-Busch, is the world's largest brewer. It owns about 630 beer brands in 150 countries. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD reached out to Anheuser-Busch for comment on the lawsuit, but did not hear back before broadcast. Meanwhile, nonprofit Consumers Research has launched an initiative called Woke Alert. It monitors and notifies people about progressive ideas pushed by corporations. People can sign up for Woke Alert notifications through the Consumers Research website. Members will receive alerts about any company that pushes a so-called woke agenda, as well as the reasons driving such actions. Tensions escalating in Florida between Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney. The governor is laying out specific actions he wants to take against the company. Governor Ron DeSantis said Monday the Republican-controlled state legislature will soon advance a bill aimed at allowing a state takeover of land controlled by Disney. This comes after Disney tried to resist the takeover of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, the special tax district that gave Disney the power to self-govern. Disney did basically special deals to circumvent that whole process. And so they, so they controlled the board. So it was ba it's basically like a legal fiction. They negotiated with, its, with themselves to give themselves the ability to maintain their self-governing status. DeSantis says the new board overseeing Disney's taxing district will meet on Wednesday to make sure Disney is held accountable. An agenda for the meeting posted online says the board will consider firing existing staff and taking over development oversight within the district. We want to make sure uh, that, that Disney lives under the same laws as everybody else. And some of that has already been underway. Once the state board took over, uh, we began mobilizing state agencies to ensure that Disney's following the same rules, building inspection, safety, all these other things that they were exempt from when everybody else has to follow. The feud between DeSantis and Disney began last year. That's when Disney vowed to help repeal a new state law that banned the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation to children in kindergarten through third grade. The governor also suggested after the state takes over the land, all options are on the table. People have said, you know, maybe, maybe have a, another, uh, maybe create a state park, maybe try to do more amusement uh, parks. Uh, someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. Who knows? I mean, I just think that the, the possibilities are, 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 are endless. And so that is now going to be analyzed to see what would make, make the most sense. DeSantis says the new board overseeing Disney's special taxing district could raise taxes on the company's vast theme park empire. He suggests the additional revenue could be used to pay down the district's existing debt. In more legal news, the clash between Representative Jim Jordan and Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg continues. Jordan is trying to subpoena a former employee of Bragg's, Bragg's resisting, and now the House Judiciary Committee is responding. The two are arguing over whether Congress has the authority to investigate Bragg's prosecution of Trump. 
In the latest chapter, Jordan and the House Judiciary Committee are responding to Bragg's motion to halt a subpoena. In the subpoena, Jordan is seeking the testimony of former Manhattan prosecutor Mark Pomerantz. Pomerantz led an investigation into the finances of former President Trump. Attorneys for the committee and Jordan argue that Bragg's lawsuit to halt the subpoena violates the Constitution. Turning to Russia, U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich will have to remain in a KGB prison. A Moscow court today rejected an appeal to free him from pretrial detention. That means the journalist will be incarcerated until at least May 29th, while a spying case against him is investigated. Here's the U.S. ambassador to Russia. I can only say how troubling it was to see Evan, an innocent journalist, held in these circumstances. I was able to meet Evan yesterday at Lafortova Prison. It was the first time we were granted consular access since his wrongful detention more than two weeks ago. The Wall Street Journal reporter denies the espionage charges. His legal team suggested he be free of bail about $600,000 or placed under house arrest. The court rejected both suggestions. Russia's FSB security service arrested Gershkovich on March 29th. They accuse him of collecting state secrets about the military-industrial complex. He faces a possible 20-year prison sentence. suspect has been named. Prosecutors charged a Kansas City man with two felonies yesterday. That's for allegedly shooting a 16-year-old who came to his front door. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the charges. 84-year-old Andrew Lester was charged with first-degree assault and armed criminal action on Monday. That's for the shooting of 16-year-old Ralph Yarl. The teenager was shot twice after walking up to the wrong house. He was sent to pick up his younger twin brothers around 10 p.m. Yarl mistakenly went to the 115th Street instead of 115th Terrace. He was hit by bullets from a 32 caliber pistol to the left side of his forehead and his right arm. The probable cause statement says the rounds were fired through a glass door. A neighbor called 911 when Yarl crawled onto their lawn bleeding. The teen's family says he is now recovering at home after having surgery over the weekend to remove the bullets. Missouri has a stand-your-ground law. It allows homeowners to use deadly force in self-defense against suspected intruders. Lester claims he was scared to death because of the 16-year-old's size and thought someone was breaking in. He was taken into custody the night of the shooting and placed on a 24-hour hold. He was released less than two hours later. Police say they needed to collect forensic evidence and get a victim statement from Jarl. Jarl says no words were exchanged before he was shot, but heard Lester yell, don't come around here, as he tried to get away. An arrest warrant has been issued, with bond set at $200,000. Lester could spend the rest of his life in prison if convicted. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Hundreds of teenagers rampaged near Millennium Park in Chicago on Saturday night. Two were shot during the fray and 15 people were arrested. We speak with Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, to hear his response to the incident and to the larger issue of rising crime rates in our country. Jason Johnson, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. As a former law enforcement officer of over 20 years, what do you make of the incident that occurred in Chicago this past weekend and the city's response to it? Well, you know, it's troubling. Um, it, it creates a, a real sense uh, in, 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 Chica in Chicago and, frankly, in other cities where similar patterns are emerging, where young people are taking to the streets and destroying property and instilling fear in people in these communities. Uh, I think it's emblematic, really, of a, a loss of control. Uh, police no longer are empowered uh, to enforce the law, to create systems of accountability so that you can't just uh, take to the streets and destroy property with impunity. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a disturbing trend that we're seeing not only in Chicago, but in other cities as well. In response to the incident, Chicago's mayor-elect Brandon Johnson said his strategy to address violent crime will be to, quote, create spaces for youth to gather safely and responsibly under adult guidance and supervision. Do you think this strategy will be effective? And what else did you do if you were in his shoes? No, um, I don't think that's the problem. I don't think that there's a lack of, of spaces for uh, youth to get together. And I don't think their youth are particularly interested in con convening in places with adult supervision. And I think that's really the point. Uh, this is more of, you know, sort of an adventure, some excitement, 
that is being inspired on social media platforms where it looks like it's a good time. Uh, and maybe it is for, for many of these young people something they consider to be a good time. But it's for the adult leaders of cities and states and other communities to stand in and recognize that this is not the way that uh, that we should children should be behaving. And as the adults in the room, we have to impose accountability, which just simply means uh, when kids want to come down and take over streets and destroy property, that we have to take some action uh, to disencourage that, to, uh, to to cause children to think twice before they're going to do something like that. We also need to find ways to hold parents accountable. Ultimately, it's the parents who are supposed to be preventing these things. It really shouldn't be the city, the police, or the state, or anyone else should have to do it. It really is a, a, a matter of, of parenting. And uh, to the extent that parents don't want to do it on their own, the state has to find ways to encourage parents to do uh, their jobs as parents. Violent crime and overall lawlessness is on the rise throughout the country. In your opinion, what's causing this trend? You know, it's really, I think, two main ingredients here. One is that uh, police have been disempowered. Uh, the police are in fear of doing their jobs now. They don't want to be the next viral video. Uh, police leaders are actually encouraging uh, police officers for to disengage. Uh, to they've made police officers feel fearful, frankly, to do their job. The second ingredient here is lax enforcement by district attorney's offices. Uh, you know, we've had district attorneys elected across the country. Chicago is one city, but there are many others where district attorneys have been elected on a platform of not holding people accountable um, by by promising to not recommend jail time, even for violent offenders, and really from to limit their. Uh, traditional prosecutorial actions on police officers. So in, in other words, to, to focus on prosecuting police officers and to the exclusion of, of most others. And I think those are the two main ingredients of what we're seeing, both in young people uh, taking over the streets and in young and older people engaging in acts of, of violent crime, shootings, robberies, carjackings, and the like. Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, thank you. Thanks for having me. Wisconsin lawmakers want to make sure carjackers are punished. A new law would create harsher penalties for those who use a weapon to steal vehicles. Currently, criminals in Wisconsin can't be charged with carjacking. They can only be charged with operating a vehicle without the owner's consent if they use threats or force to take a vehicle. The new bill would formally recognize carjacking as a crime and a high-level crime at that, with a sentence of up to 60 years in prison. Currently, a carjacker faces up to 40 years and up to $100,000 in fines. Carjackers without weapons could still face 15 years in prison and a maximum fine of $50,000 in fines. House Republicans marked made, made headway in their investigation into the Biden family's business dealings. House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer says his committee has obtained new records. Comer announced yesterday that his committee obtained thousands of pages of financial records related to the Biden family their companies, and associates' business schemes. Based on the new records, Comer said the committee identified six additional members of President Biden's family who may have benefited from the Biden family's businesses. This brings the total number of Biden family members involved to nine. Comer didn't name the Biden family members, but he said the committee could issue more subpoenas to banks. Here's what he told Larry Kudlow on Fox News yesterday. We still have more family members that uh, we suspect were involved. So this is a family affair. This is something that should be troubling to every American. And what we've learned from, from going through these records are there are a lot of additional uh, LLCs, a lot of additional bank accounts that we didn't know prior to going uh, to the Treasury Cabinet. The Oversight Committee is investigating if the Biden family has been targeted by foreign actors and if there is a national security threat. The committee is also investigating if President Biden had any knowledge of or role in the business deals. The natural gas debate continues. A federal appeals court in California has overturned a law. It bans new construction from using natural gas appliances in the city of Berkeley. Restaurant owners argue the city bypassed federal regulations when the measure was approved. The law took effect in 2020. It banned installation of natural gas piping in new residential and commercial buildings in favor of electrical lines. The California Restaurant Association then filed a lawsuit saying the regulation violated federal law, which gives the U.S. government authority to set energy efficiency standards for appliances, such as stoves, 
furnaces and water heaters. Moreover, the Restaurant Association said the ban could end up eroding the region's reputation for fine and creative dining. As a lack of natural gas, cooking leaves restaurants unable to prepare many of their specialties. Opposition groups are expected to appeal the ruling. Texans could save as much as 70% on the most commonly used prescription medications. The Texas State House passed a proposal to import certain drugs from Canada. Texas State Representative James Tallarico wrote on Twitter that Texans pay twice as much as Canadians for their prescription drugs. Tallarico told WFAA it could save from 60 to 70% on the price of commonly used prescription drugs. Texas would join more than a handful of states seeking to import drugs from Canada. President Trump paved the way when he authorized Canadian drug importation in 2020. In late 2020, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America opposed the drug import program and sued to block it. The organization argued that it would present significant safety risks. The lawsuit was struck down earlier this year. Over in Hollywood, writers vote overwhelmingly in favor of a potential strike. This gives union negotiators the power to call one and moves Hollywood closer to a production shutdown. The Writers Guild of America says members support a walkout if they don't get new contracts by May 1st. Nearly 80% of the group's 11,500 members voted. Writers say they have suffered during the streaming TV boom in part due to shorter seasons and smaller residuals. Now they are seeking pay increases from Netflix, Walt Disney, and other studios. The last writer's strike lasted 100 days. TV networks broadcasted reruns and more reality shows, and the loss to the California economy was estimated at $2.1 billion. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers said in a statement that its goal was to reach a fair and reasonable agreement with the writers' union. When we come back, China's campaign to influence U.S. officials has borne fruit in Utah. A report says the infiltration went deep enough to affect lawmaking. And prominent U.K. lawmakers who criticize China say the regime is trying to intimidate them and their families. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. The Chinese regime could soon face consequences for its spy balloon program. The U.S. House of Representatives just passed a bill to hold the regime accountable. Between January 28th and February 4th, a Chinese spy balloon flew across the United States. It was shot down over the Atlantic, but the Chinese regime was reportedly able to transmit intelligence back to Beijing. This new bill would have the Secretary of State coordinate with U.S. allies to deal with the regime's surveillance program. It would also have the government identify the equipment the Chinese regime is using in its spy balloon system and then limit exports to make it harder for the regime to access such equipment. And under the new law, the president could sanction individuals connected to the spy balloon program. Secret Chinese regime police stations on U.S. soil. The FBI is cracking down on agents working overseas for the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. The two men were arrested yesterday for their alleged involvement in a secret station in New York City. Over 40 other defendants were charged in a separate scheme. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. We know what you're doing, and we will stop it. FBI officials and federal prosecutors say Monday's arrests make them the first law enforcement partners in the world to take agents from the Chinese regime's overseas police stations into custody. 61-year-old Harry Liu Jianwang of the Bronx and 59-year-old Chen Jinping of Manhattan were arrested at their homes Monday morning and appeared in court later in the day. The men are both U.S. citizens, but U.S. officials say at no point did the men register with the Justice Department as agents of a foreign government. They are charged with conspiring to act as agents of the Chinese regime, as well as obstructing justice by destroying evidence of communications with a CCP official. If convicted, the defendants face a maximum sentence of five years in prison for conspiring to act as agents of the CCP and up to 20 years for obstruction of justice. Now just imagine the NYPD opening an undeclared secret police station in Beijing. It would be unthinkable. Beijing operates a network of over 100 similar police outposts in other countries. 
CCP authorities say the offices help overseas Chinese to renew documents and driver's licenses and help them with passport services. But U.S. officials say the secret police stations hide a dark secret. The Chinese National Police appear to have been using the station to track a U.S. resident on U.S. soil. The Justice Department is stepping up its efforts to disrupt the CCP from locating pro-democracy activists and others critical of Beijing's policies. 44 defendants in all were charged Monday with various crimes allegedly orchestrated by the CCP's police force to harass, intimidate and silence Chinese dissidents living in the U.S. The Chinese regime is accused of creating thousands of fake online personas on U.S. platforms to suppress critics, spread propaganda and create political divisions in U.S. elections. Prosecutors charged eight CCP officials in China with directing a U.S. telecommunications company employee to remove Chinese dissidents from the company's platform. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Beijing and Washington are facing off at the national level, but on the local scale, the Communist Party has found robust friends in the U.S. A recent report reveals China's success in infiltrating the state of Utah. In some cases, pro-China officials delayed legislation that Beijing didn't like or supported resolutions that boosted its image. Here's a closer look. A deeply religious and conservative state has landed in the red trap of the Chinese Communist Party. That's according to an investigation by the Associated Press last month. It says up to 25 Utah lawmakers have made routine visits to China every other year since 2007. The costs half paid by the Chinese regime. The CCP's tailored relation building has yielded notable gains. In one example, China-friendly lawmakers held off on a ban on Beijing-funded Confucius Institutes. China touts the organizations as language and culture exchange programs, but they're known for helping expand Beijing's influence overseas. The ban's delay came despite White House warnings about the program being a Chinese propaganda machine. In another case, Utah passed a 2020 resolution by a near-unanimous vote. It expressed solidarity with Beijing when the pandemic first began. A pro-China resident allegedly drafted language for the resolution. Meanwhile, the regime has also targeted American kids. In 2020, Chinese leader Xi Jinping wrote a New Year's letter to Utah fourth graders. Some lawmakers gushed about the letter, calling it remarkable, kind, and personal. They struck the same tone as China's state media. It quoted Utah students as calling the authoritarian leader Grandpa Xi. What's more, China advocates tapped into the Mormon church, which holds a major following in Utah as it seeks to grow in China. A key figure at play is Tao Wen Le, a professor at Weber State University in Ogden. While lobbying through Mormonism, he played matchmaker for Chinese and Utah officials. His efforts managed to defeat the passage of a 2021 resolution condemning China's genocide of Uyghur Muslims. A former FBI agent is now sounding the alarm. He says if the Chinese can succeed in Salt Lake City, they can also make it in New York and elsewhere. Australia, Canada and Britain have issued similar alerts. Over in the UK, China is also targeting members of parliament. Some who regularly criticize China say they and their families were deterred from speaking out. Sir Ian Duncan Smith, a former Conservative Party leader and a prominent China critic, told the Telegraph newspaper that an imposter created a fake email purporting to be him. The imposter tried to convince politicians that Sir Ian had recanted his views and decided that the Chinese regime was a beacon of goodness and decency. Alicia Kearns, the head of both the China Research Group and Foreign Affairs Committee, revealed that the regime also targets lawmakers' families. She said when a child of a colleague applied to university, the institution was warned all Chinese funds would be withdrawn if the child was accepted because the parent had been sanctioned by the Chinese regime. There are also reports that the child of one of the sanctioned members of parliament was barred from getting on a flight with a Chinese airline. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, Ch Russia sends nuclear-powered submarines to the Pacific as part of a massive naval drill continuing in the waters. Lawmakers joined protesters in London over the weekend, lambasting the mayor's plan to expand the ultra-low emission zone more shortly here on NTD News Today.
Beijing and Moscow are forging closer military ties. During his visit to Russia, Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu said Beijing is looking at stronger partnerships between the two countries. Li took part in the wreath-laying ceremony for unknown soldiers today before meeting with the Russian defense minister. Li was appointed defense minister of the Chinese regime last month. He said the first congratulatory message he received came from Russia counterpart. After my appointment to the position of defense minister, my first visit was paid namely to Russia to show the outer world the high level of development of Chinese-Russian relations. And it was designed to show the firm readiness to boost strategic cooperation between the armed forces of China and Russia. He vowed to bring the two countries' military cooperation to a new level. His four-day visit to Russia began with a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin last Sunday. Russia hailed their partnership as having a so-called stabling influence on the global situation. Over to the Pacific Ocean, Russia's sweeping naval drills continue today. Moscow says it has deployed nuclear-powered submarines. Naval minesweepers escorted the subs from Russia's far east. The drills are part of a snap review of combat readiness for Russia's Pacific fleet. Moscow said during the exercises, the fleet's anti-submarine aircraft practiced researching for the subs. The aircraft stayed in the air for the maximum duration they are capable of. On Russia's doorstep, Polish forces are conducting a counteroffensive exercise. The troops are simulating a takeover of the strategic Vistula Split Canal, just a few miles from Russian enclave. A Polish military officer said they are trying to stop a possible Russian attack in that area. U.S. military personnel and vehicles also took part. Meanwhile, in London, hundreds of protesters gathered to expose expanding the ultra-low emission zone. In this zone, drivers are fined if their car creates too much emission. London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, plans to extend the zone throughout Greater London in August to reduce pollution. The move has been welcomed by green groups, but protesters call it attacks on the poor that won't achieve what it claims. NTD's Malcolm Hudson sent us this report. A protest against ULES, that is the ultra-low emission zone that charges drivers £12.50 per day unless their car meets emission standards. Mayor of London Sadiq Khan plans to extend ULES across Greater London with the aim of reducing pollution. But whether this aim will be achieved is debated and it has been widely called a tax on the poor as many poorer people will have to sell their cars or face thousands of pounds in yearly costs. Mock number plates saying no to ULES dotted through the crowd. A man symbolically carrying democracy in a coffin. Around 60% of people who responded to a public consultation about the ULES expansion opposed the plans. Founder of the Together Association, Alan Miller, is calling for the London mayor to stand down. So we're here to say we're not going to have impositions made on us. We don't want to have the ULIS extension. We know the majority of people in London and on the boundaries don't want it either. And we've got supporters from around the country who are campaigning, lobbying, challenging things, all coming here as well in solidarity. It's a message to, Sol to Sadiq Khan to stop and stand down. Four London councils and a Surrey County Council are legally challenging the ULES plans. A high court judge last week gave them the permission to go to court on two grounds. Whether the ULES expansion is legal or not, and the scrappage part of the scheme. The £110 million scrappage scheme would give help to eligible Londoners to scrap their non-compliant cars. The drivers must be on certain benefits to receive a grant of £2,000 for a car or £1,000 for a motorbike. Khan's plans have been welcomed by green groups and clean air campaigners. A spokesperson for Khan said around 4,000 Londoners die prematurely every year due to air pollution and that Khan is not prepared to stand by and do nothing. Khan himself said he thinks the legal challenge is a waste of taxpayers' money. But councillor and London Assembly member Keith Prince says there is no evidence ULES will achieve what Khan says it will achieve. You know, he did a report, it's called the Jacobs Report, and that showed that it would have little or no effect on pollution in outer London. It showed actually it didn't really have a measurable effect on inner London, but certainly in outer London, little or no effect. This is all about raising money for the mayor, and the real sin here is the fact it's raising money from the people who are least able to afford it.
The Jacobs report said the U.S. expansion will reduce nitrogen dioxide pollution by 1.3% and fine particle pollution by a negligible amount. Bromley councillor Simon Forthrop, from one of the councils taking Khan to court, said this ULES push is not just about emissions. Fundamentally, and what I'm finding is that those people that do have ULES-compliant cars know that this is not only a Trojan horse to a certain extent, but it's no longer a Trojan horse. It's got out of the, out of the horse, it's waving the flags. It's road pricing, and that's what's coming. Pay per mile. In an interview with the Financial Times newspaper, Khan recently suggested charging drivers for each mile they drive as well as the amount of emissions their car creates and what time they drive. Regarding the ULES expansion, a Bromley resident shared her dilemma. I've got a Jeep, it's got, it's got to go. I've got a little caravan, I'm a single parent, I work hard for. I've got to sell my caravan. My car isn't compliant, so I've got to buy another car, but I can't afford one. But it's not just me, it's all our farmers, it's all our care workers that go in and out the boroughs. She said some students in her area didn't know about the ULES plans and that they won't be able to afford the £12.50 daily charge. Similarly, farmers would have to pay for driving their tractors between farms. Former Lib Dem MP and current Director of Communications for the Motorcycle Action Group, Lembitopic, said ULES will punish millions. ULES has always been a tax on the poor. It affects those least able to pay it the most. The expansion means it's punishing millions of residents of this city who never asked Sadiq Khan to introduce it, but went to the trouble of opposing it in a consultation he subsequently ignored. If he carries on like this, the question has to be, who does he think he serves? The public who pay his salary or some vainglorious dogmatic and unscientific pseudo-environmental agenda that won't save lives but will cost this city the earth. The ULES expansion is planned to start from the end of August and would cover near enough all of Greater London. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, artefacts buried beneath a military barracks in Australia. The rediscovered items include boots, bones, old shoes and more. And a vessel built over a century ago was the highlight of the Texas Tall Ships Festival. Stay tuned for more on the 1877 Alyssa when we return. A previously unknown coral reef has been discovered. It's off the coast of Ecuador's Galapagos Islands and is home to abundant marine life. The pristine coral reef was found at a depth of around 1,200 feet on the summit of a submarine mountain. It's just over a mile long and has more than 50% living coral. Ecuador expanded the Galapagos Marine Reserve by over 20,000 square miles last year. That was to protect endangered migratory species between the Galapagos and Cocos Islands in Costa Rica. The Galapagos Islands are home to many endangered species, including giant tortoises, albatross, and cormorants. Archaeologists have found a treasure trove of historical artifacts beneath a military barracks in Hobart, Australia. From boots to bones, the discovery is a window into colonial times. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the dig. These barracks have been housing military personnel for decades, but they've also been hiding a secret. Archaeologists have uncovered artifacts that shine a light on the past. From carved bones to old shoes, these discoveries tell stories. A builder who'd been working underneath the mess came in with an old dirty boot and put it on my desk. And I said, what, what have we got here? What, what are you doing? In total, 1,800 items dating back to convict times have been found so far. Convicts were transported to Australia from the late 18th century to the 19th century. These artifacts include army uniforms, convict garments, and pieces of ceramic. What they would do is they would use a cow, scapula, or rib, um, and then carve out circles like this, and then eventually form it to make, you know, often a button like this. It took two days to dig all these artifacts up, but in the end, the labor was worth it. You just come out covered in dirt and sand uh, with, I had bruises on every inch of my body, it was hilarious. Um, so yes, not, not a really lovely, <laughs> not a 
lovely work site, but, um, you know, worth it for the amazing things that were there. Experts say the items are actually well-preserved. One piece is believed to be the collar of a soldier's jacket. His name is still legible. The size of the find is really unusual. Uh, the organic, the, the way organic materials break down in environments means we don't find this sort of stuff very often. Now archaeologists are digging further underneath the barracks. Maybe other artifacts are waiting to be unearthed. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Texas is celebrating tall ships. At a festival last week, tens of thousands of visitors boarded Elissa, one of the world's oldest still sailing ships. The tall ships are all traditional sailing vessels with a high mast and large sails. One of them is the Elissa, built in 1877. It was named a National Historic Landmark in 1990, and it's now sitting in Galveston Harbor all year round as a museum ship. Locals call it the Jewel of Texas. The historical design struck a chord with visitors. The Alyssa is the official tall ship of Texas. It was built in 1877 in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, Alyssa made its trade by delivering goods all over the world. We have records of Alyssa coming to Galveston twice in the late 1800s, uh, delivering goods back to South America, bringing in cotton, exporting bananas. Uh, it was a cargo ship. We call it a Ford F-150 of the time. It's incredibly effective. It's uh, what we call hydraulic. So there's no electrical, there's no hydraulic system, there's nothing to leak or to break. It's just uh, steel on steel and it works very well. The event featured several other tall ships as well. Attendees paid to board any of the docked vessels and some even took a sailing trip to Galveston Bay. In central Peru, archaeologists have found the remains of an ancient ceremonial bathroom. It dates back to the Incan Empire before Christopher Columbus arrived in the Americas. The Inca bath is the second found at the current archaeological site. It's more complex and larger than the former one. The structure is over six feet deep and has two asymmetrical enclosures. Researchers say these structures have religious and ritual relevance. The importance of this finding lies in that it allows us to understand the role played by this type of structure, which is commonly associated with the most hierarchical, restricted, and sacred spaces within the Inca administrative centers. More than having a practical or a hygienic function, they had a religious and ancestor worship function. The Inca civilization prospered around the 15th and 16th centuries. It became the largest empire ever in the Americas. Shen Yun wrapped up its 13 sold-out performances at Lincoln Center in Manhattan over the weekend. Audience members came out with smiles on their faces. We'll hear what makes this performance so heartwarming. And a Ukrainian pianist prepares for a renowned piano competition in Geneva. The war has transformed the musician, musician's daily life, but he finds hope in his music. For two weeks, Shen Yun has been performing at Lincoln Center in New York City. Dozens of New York officials welcomed Shen Yun back to the venue, and some even came all the way from other countries to see the show. What makes Shen Yun so loved? Let's hear what their theater goers had to say. The last few performances at Lincoln Center ended with thundering applause. Audience members came out with smell on their faces. The artistry, the music, the choreography, bravo, they did a fantastic job. It was a beautiful, beautiful show to watch. I just thought the show was incredible. Uh, Dance-wise, choreography was incredible, but the, the togetherness, the, the perfection, everybody danced so beautifully together. And heart was, there were so many times that we had tears in our eyes because everything was so beautifully done. It was a wonderful show and I am so glad to have traveled all the way from Canada to New York to see the show. Ted Butner and his fiance Terry Muka were both performers. After seeing Shen Yun for the first time, they can't stop praising the artistic skills. I used to be a dancer long time ago, Ukrainian dancer, and I can appreciate the difficulty with the choreography that they managed and uh, incredible. I really like the tenor. The tenor had a really nice, strong, operatic kind of a voice. Beautiful, beautiful, and, and uh, the instrument, the lute. Oh. 
It's like a violin with a beautiful vibrato. Patinka Kopek is a violin teacher at the Manhattan School of Music. She is also a co-director and teacher of the Pinka Zuckerman Performance Project. By the way, I've never seen a show like that in the United States of America, so that to me is very unusual. That's why I wanted my granddaughters who are with me, 8 and 11, I said, you've got to see this. This is so different. Theater goers say, on top of the artistic value that Shengyun brings on stage, Shengyun's mission to revive Chinese culture before communism is striking their hearts. I think the message is um, the spirituality. I think community. I think um, sort of this this divine intervention that we sort of see all throughout the performance, how it begins and how it ends. And um, yeah, it's it's very different than than what we're fed about communist China. The parts about the communism suppressing the art, being Ukrainian and uh, we having been suppressed by Russian communism in our country, the fact that communism suppresses art and the truth and music in your country, that, that hit me pretty deeply in my heart and stuff. Bravo. Fantastic. Keep it going. I mean, as an artist, to another, one artist to another bunch of artists, keep it going. Keep doing what's true to your heart for your culture to represent your country, culture in your country and your art. 100%. You're fantastic performers. Uh, it's a fantastic production. Keep doing it, please. Shen Yun successfully finished 13 sold-out performances at Lincoln Center New York throughout the weekend. And it will get five more shows at Purchase New York this week. Shiren Rong, NTD News. A Ukrainian pianist is getting ready for a renowned piano competition in Geneva. Before arriving in Switzerland, he played concerts by candlelight as air raid sirens rang across his native Kyiv. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the notes. Roman Lepetinsky is participating in the international competition for young pianists in memory of Vladimir Horowitz. The event is being held outside of Ukraine for the first time. In his fourth appearance at the competition, Lopatinsky hopes to make his nation proud. We are doing everything so life endures there, so people look at Ukraine as a country with prospects, possibility, and so the country retains its musicians, its businesses, and maybe even its future. As a military-aged man, Lopatinsky has to get permission to leave the country for competitions and concerts abroad. But after each performance, he returns. I think that every award I receive, every achievement I make at contests, means a lot. It's especially nice that after I receive some kind of award or a good result, I return to Ukraine. The war has transformed the musician's daily life, as it has for all his countrymen. But even as Russia attacked Kyiv's electrical infrastructure last fall, the city's cultural life couldn't be snuffed out. We held concerts by candlelight. There were power outages at the National Philharmonic of Ukraine. This autumn, when missiles were fired at Kyiv, we had to come to terms with it. We rehearsed in the dark or used little light bulbs. We went through that. In the first months of the war, Lopatinsky held recitals on YouTube to raise money to support his country. Then he transitioned to concerts for soldiers and charity performances abroad. As long as there are artists, a balance will remain in the world. As conflicts continue to rage, he finds hope in the arts. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A handful of nuts and seeds, like a trail mix, might be all you need to manage your blood sugar. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Snacking has a bad reputation, but it really shouldn't. After all, it's not synonymous with junk food. Cookies, chips, and chocolate bars might have stolen the spotlight, but they are not the only snacks out there. Snacking can be healthy. If you have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, snacks can be essential. They can help you to manage your blood sugar levels. Diabetes is a condition where your body doesn't make enough insulin to move glucose, in other words, sugar, into cells for energy. Sugar can instead stay in the bloodstream and lead to high blood sugar. Food choices, however, can help to manage blood sugar. Snacking in between meals can help to regulate sugar metabolism to keep levels in check. The key to smart snacking is eating nutrient-dense foods. It's key to reach for foods with fiber, healthy fats, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and protein. These can all help keep blood sugar in check. These foods generally won't spike blood sugar, yet they can provide energy and keep you satiated. 
This can ultimately prevent overeating and potentially dangerous fluctuations in blood sugar. So what are some good snack ideas for managing blood sugar? Here are four ideas to consider. Number one, tuna stuffed avocado halves. Tuna is an excellent source of protein, while avocado is rich in fiber, healthy fats, and a host of vitamins. They help keep you full and promote healthy blood sugar. You can add a little flavor by mixing the tuna with red onion and a little mayo. Number two, cottage cheese. Cottage cheese is another high protein, low sugar, nutrient dense option that can be a great substitute for ice cream. Adding some nuts and fruit like frozen berries can make it an even more nutritious snack. Number three, nuts and seeds. A handful of nuts and seeds like a trail mix might be all you need to keep you going. Nuts and seeds are great sources of fiber, healthy fats and vitamins and minerals that won't spike blood sugar. Number four, apples and peanut butter. Coring an apple, slicing and spreading natural peanut butter on hits the spot almost every time. Sprinkling some chopped nuts or oats on top can make it even more decadent. Just in time for National Park Week. Finding your way around the parks across the country should now be easier. That's because Google Maps is rolling out a new feature to help you explore. The company says its updated app will generally help you navigate your way around the park you're visiting and assist you in discovering things to see and do. This includes trail routes and cycling directions. The updated app also lets you download a park map to use later without internet access. If you're interested in visiting one of the more than 400 national parks in the US, entrance fees to all national parks will be waived Saturday, the first day of National Park Week. Next, a special treat for Snoopy fans. A certain miniature shepherd looks like the beloved cartoon dog. Puppy Bailey's Instagram is going viral. The dog has black and white curly hair, fluffy ears, and a round nose, just like Snoopy. The only difference is Bailey is a mini sheepdog, while Snoopy is known as a beagle. Snoopy originated from the Peanuts comic strip Charles M. Schultz created it half a century ago. The famous pooch also starred in various Peanuts TV specials. According to the Instagram profile, Bailey is turning two years old next month. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers. NTD News, New York City.